Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Hopeless Romantic. As always, I'm Austin Chant. I'm Amanda Jean. And this is our show. This hey. is... Hey. <laughs> <laughs> this is part two of our Advice for New Authors episode. First part, uh, we covered the, some of the major publishers, submission guidelines, basically what to do before you submit, genre conventions, beta readers, that kind of thing. So if you need help with that, uh, hop back a couple episodes and check that out. Today, we are going to be talking about submitting your manuscript, working with editors, social media for beginners, contracts, uh, basically everything you need to know. A lot of it is stuff you should probably know uh, before submitting, but it's also your Way book more got accepted. Relevant. Yeah. Let's say you, your book got accepted or you are right about to submit it. This will help you uh, with that process. I will say off the bat, we are not lawyers. We are not tax attorneys, more specifically. We are not accountants. And uh, we are just lay people who happen to work in the industry and have seen a lot of contracts and have our own perception of what comes across as industri industry standard for our little niche of um, queer publishing. Yeah, it, worth mentioning that if you are publishing anywhere else in book publishing, this may not apply. <laughs> These may not be the standards elsewhere. Yeah, and we're going to use very general, you know, figures and quote unquote facts so it's always important if you are unfamiliar with this and you feel like you're going to be making a pretty substantial financial investment in your future as an author, maybe take it to an accountant or take a contract to a lawyer and have them look at it just to give you a more in-depth and reliable rundown of what's going on. But I think if you are just starting out, it's good to know some of the things we're going to let you know. So, first off, submitting your manuscript. But um, an exciting moment for everyone, or so we would hope. Uh, yes. Probably terrifying, too. I don't know. I don't really have that kind of... I don't know. I don't. Those nerves don't set in for me, but I imagine for other people, it's, it's a they bit of a... They certainly do for me. I am the person who sits there, like, writing... I always leave writing my blurb for submission to an editor till, till the very end, and then I am frozen with indecision over every single word of my <laughs> uh, cover letter or blurb or whatever other part of it I'm working on. So, Amanda, as an editor, how should people address their submissions and what should they know about cover letters? So first of all, you're going to want to check the um, publisher submission guidelines because you're most likely submitting to the general sort of slush pile submissions email, which is where most unsolicited manuscripts go. And then the acquiring editor tends to look over them and read the synopsis, read the, the email or the cover letter and um, see if it's a good fit for the house. If you are lucky enough to be submitting to an editor proper, like you have a contact or you're maybe during a pitch war, somebody favorited your tweet and you're sending to them, um, you would want to definitely address it to them using somewhat formal speech, but not so formal that <laughs> you don't use contractions. In <laughs> like you're basically, you know, you're sending a polite, friendly email that says, like, if, if it were to me, Dear Miss Jean, attached is my manuscript of however many thousands of words. What you're doing is adhering to what they ask for. Sometimes they ask for just um, a blurb, which is uh, essentially the back cover of a book, what you would see that's a rough summary of the book, but it's it tends to be a little bit more intriguing than a straight up summary. And some places will ask for a scene-by-scene -scene synopsis, which is where you outline the entire book 
in terms of the big beats scene by scene in a separate document. I think at least two places I know of ask for synopses and it's a good idea to have that done ahead of time because I guarantee you if you, if a press does ask for it and you don't submit it, they're probably not going to email you back and ask for it. They're most likely just going to go, oh, this person doesn't read directions. How wonderful for them. They also, they may ad- ask you to uh, like format your subject heading in a certain way in the guidelines. That's important so it doesn't get lost um, and so they can easily find it. But if you can, if you are submitting to Slush, um, you, you can do that to whom it may concern. I would generally go with just saying, hello. If you don't know exactly who you're emailing, it's better to not get it wrong. Um, I've had people submit to my head editor asking for me, even though that isn't my email, and I've had people address the wrong person to the slush pile. So it's better to just say, if you don't know who you're emailing, um, and it's just going to the straight up submissions email, say to whom it may concern or just hello, because hello, hello or dear editor or something. Yeah, dear, dear editor is even a decent placeholder, but you should have some sort of salutation. I was just I, I thought I might as well pull up some of my submission emails that I've sent. Um, and I see that I sent my um, novella Caroline's Heart in as like dear magic and mayhem editors because I knew there were like three or Yeah, four, there's three of us. And I didn't know who would be reading it or maybe they were all reading it. Spoiler alert, it was me and Nicole Kimberling. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Could have said, hello, Nicole Kimberling and that other asshole, Amanda Jean. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't have been professional. That would have been inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and as far as cover letters go, I think often you can be, it's not super duper complicated necessarily. The more complicated you make it, the more prone you are to sounding really stilted and making mistakes. I, I think in this genre too, there's not necessarily, this is where I, I want to stress, this is for queer romance, not for all. In this genre, there is a little bit less of an an expectation that you're gonna like list all of your previous publication credits for example or sell yourself as a writer mostly you just need to introduce your book so in my magic and mayhem email it's it's like two sentences of me before i just throw the blurb in there it's like attached you will find my submission for the anthology um and then a one sentence summary of my book um that lists uh, imperative details like it is an MF romance between two bisexual trans characters. It is 20,000 words long. You might want to include genre. I don't know if you did in that, but... I think I may have somewhere, but... Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you should usually include genre, especially if you're at, a, you're at a press that takes multiple genres. For example, if you're submitting something with fairies, uh, worth mentioning that it is not for their contemporary line. <laughs> <laughs> contemporary yeah. fairies. So it, it, it's really, it can be pretty straightforward. And as long as it is clear, spell-checked, easy to read, it doesn't need to be flowery. It doesn't need to be simpering. Certainly you don't need to be like, dear editor, I love you and everything you've ever done. <laughs> it doesn't hurt if you talk about why you think your work will be a good fit for them. Yes. I know that I would definitely keep an eye out for something a little bit more personalized. Like, um, let's say you were submitting to me at um, Nine Star Press. You would say, I thought that this would be a good fit for Nine Star because of X. Maybe it's because of our collection of um, sci-fi. Or if you were submitting to me at LT3 because of LT3's reputation with x work and maybe that would be fairy tales showing that you have an eye for what sells at your target press that you are familiar with their work and you know what they're known for good general compliments 
well, if you, you know, if you carry them off with enough aplomb, I'm sure people will appreciate them, but we're not really looking for that. We're just looking for why you think your book is good and why we should publish it and uh, having a good blurb and including everything that we asked for in our submission guidelines is really the only shortcut to that, right? Like there's no, there's no secret code. There's no, <laughs> they're not even like if, if somebody writes and is like, Amanda, uh, I've submitted this manuscript. Um, and also you look very pretty today. Um, <laughs> that's not gonna, I mean, maybe 0.0003%, but that's not enough of a point percentage. It also might make me feel manipulated. Like, oh, did they compliment me because they really think I'm pretty or do they just want me to publish their book? <laughs> I feel taken advantage of. Also, how do they know? Are they following your Instagram? Oh, that's a good question. Mm, my Instagram's locked. <gasps> yeah. See, that's a little bit of a red flag. Even. <laughs> it's a caper now. It's so funny because I've looked at um, submission requirements for big sixes and I've looked for submission requirements and many of them are agented which um, agents would take care of a lot of that, but you might have a hand in writing a query letter or something. The queer romance uh, genre industry does not require agents. Some places will accept agented submissions, but that that doesn't necessarily give you a leg up as far as I know. And I honestly feel like there are so many indie publishers that they would probably just be like an agented submission. Wow. How do we handle this? Do we need to do anything special? Yeah. In general, you're going to do more, I think, direct submissions than querying than you would do in a lot of other genres. A lot of times you're just going to send in your damn book. Your whole manuscript. Some people will ask for the three chapter thing or the first 50 or 100 pages, but most people won't. They'll just say, send me your dang manuscript. Well, that said, I have queried and I have gotten something accepted that I have not written, but that's less common. That's less common. And that's usually if you've worked with them before and you're like, hey, I have an idea for a novel with you. I thought I'd query it. In that that case, it was because, you know, this was not a book that I would write standalone unless it was already accepted. But in most cases, write your book first and then submit it. Yeah, don't, don't hold out hope that you can just email people your story ideas and go like can I write this will you publish it for sure guaranteed because there's no especially if you're coming out of the woodwork they don't know your writing they don't know if you can adhere to deadlines so if they're just like oh yeah write that it seems like a good idea and you turn in a hot mess then they're like oh we can't publish this we made a mistake we can't fix this (laughs) yeah that's super not the case in a lot of other genres necessarily Sometimes it is. Sometimes but. it is. I still feel like you, generally speaking, will not query books that you have not written in most other industries. But I think that that might be a little bit more standard just because um, we are a smaller industry. I mean, we're, we've, we are a decent sized presence, but we don't have some of the... I don't know. I was thinking about this before and it's like, I almost feel like the... The, the level of scrutiny and rigorousness that, that comes along with some of publishing just seems like pretense to me. It seems performative. And I really appreciate, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, because sometimes you want to feel special and important and you don't want to waste anybody's time with chit chat. But at the same time, there's something really nice about being able to um, send an email to an editor and have it be somewhat more personable and less scary. I can invite authors to submit to me directly at various places. And that's always nice because then they know me 
and they know who they're emailing rather than if they're just throwing their manuscript into the void. Yeah, so a quick note on writing your blurb as well. Um, It's going to vary depending on where you submit, potentially. If they have like a word length that they request for a blurb, you should adhere to that. But in general, I feel like the best way to learn how to write blurbs is to read a lot of blurbs. A lot of blurbs. Because blurb writing is not the same as book writing. And in general, what you want to do is get a sense for how people encapsulate, especially projects similar to yours, but how in general people kind of express the concepts of uh, romance and character building and all of that and, and how they gel that down into a little thing. And just kind of do that until you can start thinking of your own book in terms of those snappy marketing words. Basically, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because essentially, um, the blurb, at least when you're submitting, because frequently when you submit a book with a blurb, the blurb will go through edits or be completely rewritten. Um, But you want it to be a marketing tool, so it needs to be pitchy. Like, it needs to be something that you're not just using, like you assume someone would pick up a book, look at the blurb and go, oh, I want to read this. You want to make sure that it's, it's really tight. It's really exciting. But at the same time, if you're a person who doesn't feel like you're great at writing blurbs, something that suffices, that basically is coherent and <laughs> and follows the, the publisher's guidelines, is fine. Don't beat yourself up about it if you can't write a spectacular blurb. But I would recommend asking a friend to look at it if you feel like you're maybe not cutting it. All right, so I think that's blurbs. Uh, let's move on to... Working with editors? Working with editors, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have um, we have another couple episodes that have delved into what the editing process is like. There's one with Nicole Kimberling, and I have talked on and off about editing on this entire podcast because that is what I do, and that is what I think about 24-7. I can't escape. <laughs> I'll break it down really quickly for those of you who are new and maybe haven't experienced the process before. There's different types of editing. There's generally an uh, an acquiring editor or a managing editor who reviews submissions and says yay or nay, and sometimes they will send it back to you and say yay, but we want you to fix these like five things first. They send you a revise and resubmit or they say they send you a contingency like, oh yeah, we'll publish this, but you have to make these changes in order for us to. And that's great. And you should be excited. Um, after that level, there's developmental slash content editors, of which I am one. And they are people who work on the big picture stuff like uh, structure, pacing, character motivations, the romance arc, um, plot holes... Stuff like that. The the big stuff, not the little fiddly stuff. Then there's line editors, and here it gets a little bit interchangeable. Some people, um, some places don't do a separate line pass. Sometimes um, a lot of publishers sort of clump that together into like one or two stages. Um, line editors go line by line, as the title implies, and they fiddle with the mechanics of style. Um, maybe rephrasing stuff that sounds awkward, they find redundancies, they fact check, they um, basically make sure you haven't used something that's branded and misspelled the brand name, stuff like that. And then there's copy editors who also look at that, but they're looking at spelling, grammar, punctuation, adherence to house style, adherence to the Chicago Manual of Style, which is generally the publication that most how styles are based off of. And there's a lot of really esoteric and cool stuff in there in terms of like, how do you punctuate numbers? And how do you um, deal with dashes and interrupted dialogue? And how do ellipses factor into this strange situation that only three people would ever encounter? 
it's um, really fun work, but it's also very tedious. And then after that, after copy editors is proofreaders, and they are generally going to go through the entire thing and make sure no one missed anything glaring. Um, and even though there have by this point been so many people looking at the book, there's probably still a lot of little tiny itty bitty errors that need to be caught and sometimes big ones. <laughs> and then that, that's usually it. And then um, frequently, I know some people have quality assurance people that go one more time through the galley, which is, or the advanced reader copy, which is the essentially like assembled version of the ebook or the, I don't, they don't really do that with print in this genre, but um, ebook. They go through the ebook. It's got its cover. It's got everything all formatted the way it's supposed to look. It's pretty nifty. And then they make sure that there's no problems with either the ebook formatting or anything left over in the writing itself. And that is the editorial process. So in general, like the content editor will tell you to rewrite the chapter because the character motivations don't make sense. The line editor will be like, you used the same phrasing five times in this chapter. Let's do something else there. The copy editor will be like, you misspelled your character's name three times in this chapter. <laughs> the proofreader will be like, there were two spaces after this period instead of one. And the quality assurance person will be like, that line break got real weird when we copy pasted it into this format. Fix it. You're so concise. I enjoy <laughs> you. Only because you, you blazed the trail ahead of me. It's it's so funny, like, I, I forget that not everybody lives with that in their whole life and lives <laughs> with, like, spreadsheets of who's got what at what stage of the project. And someone will be like, what's the difference between copy editing and content editing? And I'm like, yeah. oh, my baby! <laughs> it's also worth <laughs> mentioning this, and I don't know how many queer romance presses get into this, but um, when I took my, I took an editing certificate a couple years ago, in that one, there was, like, light copy editing, copy editing, and heavy copy editing, mm -hmm. with heavy copy editing being like one half step below line editing, where it was still expected to address issues of style, and light copy editing being much closer to proofreading, being a, a, a quicker like, where'd you put the, where'd you put the period kind of deal. It really depends on the on the company. Um, some companies have some companies break them down into those like basically four or five steps, and some companies do them a little bit more like at the same time. It really just depends. But um, basically, to check and make sure that the company you're submitting to does actually have an editorial process, you can look at their FAQ or you can email them directly and ask them what their editing process is like. And you should probably read one or two of their books to see if the inside of their books are pretty and if they are filled with glaring errors because that is a good sign that they don't have a wonderful at least proofreading stage but that's basically the process and you will work with at least one editor um probably the managing editor uh and your content editor and then after that you may or may not be in direct contact with the copy and proofreader I don't, at LT3, I don't speak directly to authors unless they ask to speak to me. Um, it's all run through my managing editor, Samantha Durr. At other companies, that's not really the case. Uh, usually I'm put into contact with authors and then we email back and forth. The majority of the conversation happens in the document itself. We use track changes to track 
line alterations and track changes being a part of Microsoft, Microsoft Word. Microsoft Word. If you are not- yeah. Um, and you should probably have Microsoft Word or OpenOffice if you cannot afford Word. Many people will work with OpenOffice, but if you're going to be doing this as anything other than a diversion, you should probably have Word. Word is important, unfortunately. Um, I love Word, but I It's also extremely it's robust. As like it, it takes some time to get used to, but as a tool of the trade, it's like you can do so else. much. Yeah, there's nothing else like it. So most of the conversation happens in the document itself, but you will probably not necessarily, but you will probably get an edit letter um, once your story has been accepted. Um, and if you, like I said before, if you get a revise and resubmit, which is change these things, and then we'll probably publish you, you'll have a good idea of what they want you to change. <laughs> but yeah, Austin, do you want to talk a little bit about this? Because I feel like I'm, I'm steamrolling right over the conversation. Well, that's because you're the expert, but I can certainly talk from the, from the opposite side of being the one who is edited. I would say one of the most important things for new authors to learn, and I, I, I'm sure we've said this like five times before, we probably said it five times in the last episode, get used to working with editors and taking criticism of your work and on whatever you need to do for yourself to be in a good frame of mind to take criticism when you open the document. Because unless you are a golden god who does nothing wrong in your life, uh, you are going to open up your document and it will be full of changes, major and minor. It, It may also be full of praise may not. Some editors are more demonstrative with that than others. And know that the editor's job is to present the best version of your work to the reader, ultimately, as well as, uh, you know, helping you refine your own work. So their work is a huge gift to you. I am right now (laughs) struggling with edits for a book, uh, Peter Darling, which Amanda is working on, and I, I whine constantly about how I'm in hell because this <laughs> editorial process isn't long. But it is not, very importantly, not Amanda's fault. <laughs> I am in hell and with it, you, Yes, son. it is nothing that Amanda has done wrong. It's that it's a, it's a complex book to edit and a tight turnaround time. Yeah. And so I don't know. I just think it's, it's valuable to recognize that it's hard to see criticism of your work and it can be emotionally difficult, I think. And maybe you need to, like, there have been times when I recognized that for myself, I needed to open the document, read the edits, and then just completely step back for like at least a day and not even start until I had time to get over the defensive reaction of like, I thought that part was fine. Like, step back, process, and then move into a stage where I could work with that. My golden rule is that if somebody tells me exactly what to change, they may not be correct, but if they notice something is wrong, they are probably correct. Even if the exact way they suggest to fix it is not exactly what I want to do in my voice, they're probably still right that something is wrong there. So all of that is valuable. Even if you don't take a suggestion exactly as as written, it's still valuable to take that feedback and go like, okay, but why did something paying my editor is off? Mm-hmm. And you can negotiate. You can say, well, I'm not prepared to do X, but could we try Y? Or could you tell me a little bit more about why you're requesting this change? Because I would much rather negotiate than have someone shut me out or change something that they don't understand. At the end of the day, unless someone's making 
um, a conditional edit, like, unless you make this change, we won't publish the book. You have a lot of power to say no or to at least ask for some leeway because it's your book, it's your voice. Thing to keep in mind is we're not only trying to refine and polish your personal author voice and tell the the best story um, that we possibly can, we're also looking at marketability. Um, we're looking at what the press wants, and we usually have a pretty good idea of what sells well in the industry and what goes over well and what some um, readers will pick up on. And so we may say like, hey, we've noticed um, that readers tend not to respond well to situations like, you know, fill in the blank. Could we replace it with something else? Or we've noticed that this tense doesn't sell as well. Could we change the tense, Austin? Mm-hmm. We can... <laughs> this is call-out culture. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of things that are um, negotiable and things that are a work in progress. And I do not, I mean, I've worked with some editors as, a, as an author. And while I'm, I don't know if it's just because I am an editor, while I'm less intimidated by the process, I have been in situations where I'm like, okay, we need to talk this out. And if I hadn't realized I'd had that option, the whole process would have been a lot scarier than it needed to be. I would so much rather have like an earnest, like, can we do this instead? Email than just a, a, you know, a sad, defensive, reactionary, like, I can't do that. I won't do that. I never, and I don't want to make an author feel bad. And I really have never encountered an editor who wants to make their author feel bad either. No, I, I, and I think too, a lot of good stuff can come out of just the dialogue. A lot of the edits that I have felt most defensive about, I've then talked to the editor and realized that they were, they were right that I needed to change something. Again, even if I disagreed with the exact thing they wanted to do, I would be like, oh, so the root of the problem here is X. Can I fix it this way instead? This would feel true to what I want to do. And very often the answer there is yes. Or at least it's, "Mm, that's not going to work, but let's keep talking about it and try something else. Let's discover something. I think you you owe it to yourself to value your work enough to be able to push back on things that are really important to you. But you also owe it to yourself to recognize that your editor is probably very savvy about the industry. One would certainly hope and that they are going to be keyed into things that you as the author are not um, and to always at least consider what they lay out. And you have to ask yourself how much of it is going, because it's a difficult thing, right? When you have your own vision of a book and you understand a project so well and they ask you to change something, you know, major or minor that you think of as integral to your vision and you have to really think, is this something that will affect just my vision or something the audience is going to feel the loss of? And um, that's usually a sign that if the editor's asking you to change it, it might be that you're the only one who's going to notice the loss. And that's a bummer for you. Always try and keep that objectivity in mind. I know it's hard. I, I have asked authors to make very difficult, painful cuts, and I feel badly when I do it. But I'm always so happy when they listen to me or they we come up to some sort of mutually satisfying agreement where they cut some of it. <laughs> yeah. I think there's, there's also a sort of a, we, we've talked about this before just in person, stuff that sticks out to the author as like their shining gem of their book often also sticks out to editors in the opposite way as something that does not match the rest of mm-hmm. the book and is jarring. I think that's where a lot of Kill Your Darlings advice comes from because a lot of times what that means is that that's sticking out 
and generally you don't always want your prose to draw attention to itself. Like sometimes you do. And again, you know, you, you have to make the call of like, is this where I want to push back or not? But I've, this happens to me a lot because I, I get, you know, precious about my own cleverness. And then I'll be like, oh, I love that line. That line's so good. And then that's the line that my editor is like, eh, this, this doesn't work. Take it out. And I'm like, what? But that line <laughs> is better than the whole rest of my book combined. And then I'm usually like, well, no, they said they liked the rest of the book. And it was just this line that didn't fit the rest of it. Maybe <laughs> this line is uh, is not actually worth the price of the entire book. <laughs> so I think there's that's a thing to consider. Writing a book is not generally about showcasing individual jewels of lines or scenes. It is about writing a story that, that holds flows. together. Yeah. So at that point, I think you either need to change the rest of the book so that it matches that one line or take out that one line. <laughs> take out the one line and be done with it. I was going to say, too, um, if you're a slow writer or you have a, a lot of difficulty writing and you tend to stop and start and it's when you encounter a roadblock, it slows you down, i.e. you're me, revision deadlines are going to kill you. Because when you get an edit back, they'll say, okay, well, please incorporate this um, and have the next pass of the manuscript back to me in however many days. And you can get anywhere from two weeks to, I don't know, two months. I don't think you would get two months, but let's say you did. Um, it's usually like a month um, if it's a novel. And in that time, you have to not only address the the deletions that they want you to make, but you sometimes have to rewrite entire scenes, chapters, the whole third act of the of the book. Like you have to do a significant amount of rewriting, which means you have to generate new material and you have to be happy with it. <laughs> so don't put it off as much as you can and really be ready to be incredibly selfish and tell people that you can't go out at night because you're working on revisions. It is going to eat a huge chunk of your time and I, you, most places will understand if you can't do 150% of what you thought you were, but you need to make a good faith effort to get everything done before you resubmit, um, before you send in that pass. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of emails I've gotten from frantic authors being like, I've done two thirds of it, what do I do? Can I have another week? Like, yeah, you can have a week, but not everyone's gonna give you that week. You need to make sure you're respectful of the deadline because if you're not, it's gonna push everything out that much further. And there's an, a pipeline to the editing process because you need to know when you're gonna have your advanced reader copy to go out to review sites. You're going to need to know um, when you're going to have the final thing done for print and um, for just in terms of the editor's schedule because I'm never working on one project at a time. And so if you throw me off by a week, I might be late a week and a half and getting it back to you or longer. And then suddenly we're having to look at like, do we change the do we change the release date? Because none of us could meet our deadlines like that's not feasible. And a lot of queer romance presses work on very tight deadlines. Quick turnarounds, yeah. Way faster turnarounds than you would encounter in a lot of other parts of the publishing industry. So that is something to be aware of. This, this genre moves fast. Yeah, a lot of places you'll only see um, two or three months turnaround, which is very quick. Some places you will see, uh, most places I work with are somewhere between six and nine. Some of them are not that long but it really depends on the length of the book and what their schedule looks like because if they can get it in a little earlier they'll usually try to. Peter Darling for example I started writing in the beginning of July 
and it will be coming out in February. Yeah, but to be fair, you could have you could have started writing it. Before I could have started earlier. Uh, it was due at the end of July. <laughs> all right, look, the callouts are coming hard and fast. You said that like you hadn't. I, it just sounded like such a mean turnaround. Like, oh, I've only had this much time. No, son, it was due at the end of July. <laughs> This we haven't fair, even started fair full out. line edits. Kill me in the street. But yeah, um, it's coming out in February. So Austin and I are kind of nervously looking at each other like, can we get this done in time? I'm coughing so much because I'm going to die about this book. But yes, <laughs> and I think I think since I turned the book in, I have had, I think my the first pass of edits that you did, you turned into, <laughs> excuse me, I'm going to die. <laughs> Peter Darling is going to kill me. The first round of edits you did was about a month. And since that first month, I've had about two weeks off, one month on, two weeks off, one month on. Mm-hmm. So we've done a lot of, of reading, revision, reading, revision. More and than I is think is a standard. lot of time. A lot of time to put in. And yes, this, this one has had a lot, I think, more content changes than average. But... Yeah, yeah. This is an outlier. This book should not be counted. Um... <laughs> But still, just because this is something that I have learned um, being a relatively new author is uh, the spiraling complexity and amount of editorial time that you should expect as you write longer manuscripts. Um, I started out, as I think many folks do, with shorter manuscripts that were um, novella length between 15 and like 25,000 words. And the level of complexity increase between editing a 25,000 word manuscript and a 50,000 manuscript, 50,000 word manuscript versus like a 100,000 word manuscript is exponential. Mm -hmm. It's not just adding words, it's, it's sustaining um, story and pace and structure over that much more space. And keeping a lot more in your head so that is something that I have come suddenly and harshly face to face with this year, having edited both a 15,000 word manuscript and a 50,000 word manuscript. The 50,000 word one requires so much more mental energy just to stay in touch with how much is going on in the book. Yeah, and there's and so much more to remember. Yeah, for both what's of us. What's going to happen in 10 chapters and what happened 10 chapters ago, whereas in a 15,000 word manuscript, I could kind of hold it all at once and be like, this is one arc, you know? Not, this is three arcs with an overarching arc with this many characters. It's only 50,000 words, which is a short novel by like general book standards. It's not that short for romance because romance has shorter books generally, but even so. It's still a novel. Like yeah, it's, it's still it's still a novel. 50K is like, a novel. You might very well be writing something that is 75 or longer. 100. Or, God help you, longer than 100K. Oh, it's fine. I've been editing longer works a lot lately, and, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mm, it's, it's funny, too, because I spend this, not as, eh, I don't know how much time I spend with works versus the authors once it's been written, right? Like, I think I spend probably around the same amount of time um, with it once it's been, the first draft has been completed because I spend time reading it, rereading it, editing it, going back to reread my edits, editing it, and then sending it in. And then I get it back and then I do the same thing over and over. And I'm doing that for multiple projects at once. So frequently I have to go back and reread my rereads just to make sure I haven't crossed a wire somewhere. 
So by the end of the by the end of the editing process, I probably know your book as well as you do. And then once it gets published, I try and shove it from my head. It's gone. It's away. I won't remember a thing about Peter Darling when it comes out. I'll just be <laughs> like, isn't that that Peter Pan book? Wasn't did Austin write that? I don't know. I don't know. Meanwhile. I, as the author, will remember every line that I didn't tweak to my personal satisfaction. (laughs) Or if I pick it up and I see that you didn't make a change that I asked you to, I'll scream and throw it across the room. It's fine. Very mature adults. I am fortunate as a writer in that um, I was always more of a copy editor than a content editor, even when I edited. So I tend to be very scrupulous with my my uh keeping typos out of my books but i have one book that has a minor typo in it and i scream every time oh god yeah it, the the infuriating thing too is it's not technically a, it, it i know it's a typo it's grammatically correct so i understand why it was never caught by anyone it's a else stealth it typo technically grammatically correct but it is not what i meant and i know it's not what i meant and i'll never forget <laughs> that it's not what i meant that's beautiful I'm no sorry. one cares but I'm furious. <laughs> so that's the editing process. <laughs> we should probably talk about, before we get into marketing and all that good jazz, we should start to talk about contracts. So contracts are, every single press has different contracts for their books. And they have different contracts depending on whether it's ebook only or print or both. They have different contracts for anthologies, for collections, for um, stuff that's getting a second edition. Like, there are untold versions of contracts. What we're going to be talking about is what you should look for in your contracts, what the general ranges of rates are, and what some things might mean. If you have any more questions, please ask the publisher directly or go find a lawyer. Um, I will say also, uh, most contracts are negotiable, so if there is a clause you don't like, you can say so and say, hey, can we do this instead? Um, First, I should say, I'm just glancing at something, Um, you should check and see what rights they're asking for. Generally, they're asking for the sort of the the rights uh, to publish your book in ebook and print format. Sometimes they will ask for translation rights and audiobook rights. Not everyone will. And they're generally asking for a term of anywhere from two to five years. Some places are longer. I think Karina does like seven years, which is quite a long time for any work, but they're a division of Harlequin, so that makes sense. Um, anthologies will be different than that. They will they will usually just ask for, um, not always, but they will usually just ask for um, a couple years worth to print it in their anthology. And then sometimes they'll give you the rights to reprint your individual piece of work with other people who accept stories that have been published elsewhere. You can even self-publish it in that case, but check your contract to make sure you know what, what rights you are signing. Yeah, that's really the basics of that. And then you're also, in your contract, you'll also get, um what uh, type of royalties you will be earning. Um, What kind of payment. Yeah, that will all be explicitly stated in your contract, and if it isn't, run for the hills. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the types of payments that you will get generally are either a flat fee, um, an advance, which are rare in this industry. Very rare. um, And or royalties. Um, Royalties you earn on sales. They are a percentage of sales. They often are different between ebook and print because the the costs to produce those are different. Print is going to be much lower, generally speaking. They will be lower, but the price of the book is higher. 
So it sometimes will even out. Most people do not make the majority of their sales off of print books. So if you're expecting to lower those expectations <laughs> yes. right now, they're like five to 10% of your sales. Um, th th that's again, a rough estimation based on what we know. So a lot of the contracts will say net, which means any amount that um, of your percentage that you have made less fees, and that's usually vendor fees, um, like Amazon, Smashwords, Coba, places like that will take a cut for fees. Um, and then you will receive the net portion of that money once those fees have been taken out. And I've seen anywhere from 35 to 48% net for your portion. I would say if anything is less than 40, look askance at it. I would even say less than 42%. Maybe just kind of go, huh, why is it that low? Uh, you usually see it in the 45%, 40 to 45%. It's not it's not true for everybody for ebooks, but that's that's generally where you see it, right? Yeah. And then you might see um higher tiers of royalties that unlock or however many particularly units. good sales. Yeah, if you sell over 5,000, you'll get more money if you um, you know, and some places will even give you a bonus if you sell a lot. That's very rare and it will be in the contract if so. And then um, you should also look at what their their payment schedule is, if they pay monthly or quarterly or even like bi-yearly or yearly, which would be weird. I don't know very many places who pay annually. Um, I'm sure they exist though, <laughs> but it's usually quarterly. Uh, most of the places I know pay quarterly, Nine Star doesn't, they pay monthly, but even if they pay quarterly, sometimes that can get staggered weirdly, right? Because a lot of places like Amazon are on a 30 to 90 day delay in terms of when they actually pay the press uh, or the publisher or the person who published if you're self-publishing. Um, so. If you look at your statement, because you will be sent, or you should be sent, a royalty statement with your money, it will say this includes the quarter one payments for everything except for, let's say, Amazon. Because Amazon's on a different schedule, you will get the quarter one Amazon payment in your quarter two payment, and they should account for that. So don't expect to get all of your money exactly at the same time exactly when you get your quarterly payments. And also look at how long the press itself says you will have to receive those quarterly payments. Sometimes they are on a 30 to 60 day schedule post the end of the quarter. So after quarter one, they may pay you within six, 30 to 60 days of that. It's usually 30. Um, Basically, it... <laughs> don't expect your money anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 yeah. Basically, like, it's, it's just good to know that going in. Yeah, don't expect that you're going to get all of your money at once at the same time from everybody, you know, the month after you've published. It doesn't work like that. And depending on when you publish, you may get a tiny amount for quarter four sales and then have to wait until Q1 to see a bigger check. It's just so funny. Quarter Quarterly payments are the most sound, I think, way to pay your authors, but... They are not without their faults because things are staggered on a on a delay a lot of the time. And then the press has to get their accounting together to like figure out how much to pay. And then they have to distribute the checks. Oh, my God. Also, you should look and see how they pay you. Do they pay you with PayPal? A lot of times PayPal charges fees for money transfers. So you should ask the press if they're prepared to eat that. Some are, some aren't. Some people send you checks. Some people may even do direct deposit. I don't even know. 
yeah, it's highly, highly, highly variable, and the this the safest thing to assume is that it will be on a long delay, that you will not see money super fast um, from anything related to publishing. Austin, I just realized that we also have to talk about what happens if you don't see money like ninety to one hundred days after you're supposed to. Yeah. In which case, something might be really wrong. <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, well, real quick, I wanted to say uh, flat fees as well. So you may get, especially with like an anthology, they're common with anthologies, a flat payment that may be in lieu of or in addition to royalties. So you might get a flat fee just for inclusion in the anthology and then a percentage of the sales of the anthology. Which, or if they sell the, the story individually as a short, short story, you may get, like I know that happened with one of mine. I was in an anthology, but I also got individual royalties for my short story. So it depends. And you should definitely look and see if you only get a flat fee. Um, and if you get, because I've, I've actually seen situations where people have submitted and said, okay, well, I got my flat fee. When do I start getting royalties? And it's like, no, 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 you need to read your contract. You never get royalties for this flat fee anthology submission. You only ever get that lump sum at the beginning. And it's, it's just, again, good to know that that might be a completely, that might be a deal breaker. It might be a good pragmatic choice for either exposure or just for expecting that that would be a story with really low sales. In some cases, that flat fee might be more than you would make because you do have to be able to push a certain amount of copies before you're going to see significant returns. <sighs> I know, it's Goodness. so much. It's so much. It's so, it's, this is why like I can see new authors getting contracts and just being like, what do I even do? What's normal? Oh my God. Everything's the contracts different. contracts are so variable too. I have, I pulled out, um, I have done contracts with four different presses um, and so I pulled them all out today to review, and they range from 2 to 15 pages long. Um, complexity, hugely variable, and again, a lot of that has to do with what rights are being requested. Oh, and advances. Um, oh, yeah, a lot advances. Of, a lot of times there are no advances in this industry. Generally speaking, they're going to be for established authors who are a really sure sell. Um, and the thing with advances is that they are not free money. You uh, get an advance, and then when you have paid that back with your royalties, you get more money. You get you start getting your actual royalties. You don't get royalties in addition to your advance until your advance has been paid off, so to speak. The advance is kind of to cover that cash flow gap where you're writing the book or you finished the book, but you're not making sales yet because it hasn't come out. It's incentive. But, but again, you don't get money until that's paid back. And if you never pay it back, then you never get any money. <laughs> I, I've never heard, I mean, maybe it's happened, I've never heard of a press knocking on someone's door being like, give me back your advance money. They're just like, oh, too bad. I mean, that would be good to know if you have a contract that includes an advance. Like, is there any circumstance in which back? you're going to like try to make me pay this back? <laughs> Generally, that's not a thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I haven't found that. But you know what? Nothing in this industry surprises me anymore. But specifically for queer romance, the odds of you encountering, especially as a fresh out the gate author in advance, are so slim, I would not worry about it. But for future reference, that's what it is. Other things that might come up in contracts include specific rights that they are asking for in terms of your world building or characters. And that is definitely something to keep an eye on if you are conscious of maybe I want to write something else with these characters with a different press or self-published in the future. If your press is asking for rights to those to that characters, series and that, those characters, you may be locked into only publishing with that publisher. So make sure you want to do that. 
Also look out for, um, this is not super common, but it, it is a thing, the right of first refusal clause. That clause stipulates that uh, you, that press, whether for that series or for any of your books at all, has the right to see and reject that manuscript before you can submit it anywhere else. Anywhere else, yeah. Which is, I, I find that so strange. That one like, is weird to me. <laughs> it seems people, extreme. you do you, but like, I would never want, I mean, I would love to publish with a house that says, we'd love to look at your work in the future, but I don't want to be contractually obligated to send everything I write to them first. Especially because, yeah, as other different presses have different um, specialties. They have different lines. Anyway, uh, a lot of those things are negotiable as well. So if you love the press and you're like, I really want to publish here, I you can negotiate that. The press might say, no, that's non-negotiable. And then you would have to make a choice there because they are within their rights to say that's a deal breaker for us. But you can always push back. You can always see the contract and say no. What you should always do is make sure that you can stand behind everything in your contract. They will also cover stuff like, uh, one of the ones that I saw, and I would love to make sure that I have a link for this. Um, I remember one of the predatory clauses, potentially predatory clauses that I've seen, is you want to make sure that you get your rights back if your book is not selling or the, the press folds. Um, so you want to make sure that um, either your rights are terminated at a certain, at the end of a certain period of time, no matter what, that if the press stops supplying the book that you get your rights back, that if it does not sell a certain number of copies over a certain period of time, you get your rights back. Um, all those things are really important because a lot of books do get republished. And in a lot of cases, you can at least self-publish your work. But a lot of presses will take books that have been previously published, you know, repackage them, maybe re-edit them. And so maintaining a grip on your copyright and on your right to your work is really important. Like, in again, that's just one of the things you owe it to yourself to, to care about that because you don't want to be locked into a situation where you have no rights to your work. Yeah, I just had to um, get some rights back for two short stories from a publisher that was not doing well and not marketing them and had not met its contractual obligations. And if I hadn't gone after them aggressively, I wouldn't have gotten them back. And, you know, if you're in a situation where you're not getting paid, they could be in breach of contract as well. So you could get your rights back. But it really depends on what the contract itself stipulates, because there is a, there is wiggle room that is if the publishing company is predatory, they have defaulted to help them and not you. So make sure that you are protected in case that press folds. Make sure you're protected in case they don't pay you. Make sure you know what you're going to do if they are not selling your book. Um, and it, I mean, sometimes books just don't sell. But you want to have an idea of what you will do. And if they're asking for like an extremely long publication life, like seven years, which again is what Karina does, but Karina is one of the bigger publishers. And you're like, I don't know about seven years. Like, <laughs> You can say, well, can we try five instead? Um, everything is pretty negotiable. Please don't get the contract and think that if I don't sign this, you know, my dreams will all go up in smoke. You can at least ask for clarification and suggest changes. You have every right to, to not sign a contract. Yes, you are not. Yeah, there are some cases where it may say 
you know, under a rights revision clause, you can ask for your rights back, but you would have to pay a certain amount or whatever. And a lot of publishers, like if you're in a situation where you need your rights back, it's either acrimonious, not selling, the press isn't doing well, you're trying to rebrand. Like it's usually a situation where they will work with you if you have a, a relationship with them in any way. So, you know, contracts are important because they are the law with which we do business, but um, they are also negotiable before you sign them. And sometimes you can make changes to the contract after, so long as those changes are agreed upon and both signed off by both parties. Whew. Love, <laughs> I know. That, love that legalese. The, uh, there are various forums, like the, the Absolute Right forums, where people will talk about their experiences with presses. That can be worth reviewing, especially if you don't know anybody who works for a particular press to see how people have felt about working with them in the past. That could go for anything from editorial to what rights they ask for in their contracts and how well they have responded to um, inquiries about changing parts of their contracts and things like that. So basically do your research with contracts. They are the law. You can even um, before... I mean, you can... I wouldn't say email a publisher out of the blue and say, can I see a sample contract? Because a lot of them will say, we don't really have those because it's a it's a case-by-case basis. Some of them do, though. I've, I've been sent a, a boilerplate uh, contract before that was just like, this is more or less what we generally ask for um, before you see our specific contract for your specific book. Just keep in mind that it will be a specific contract for your book. Um, and, you know... If you get sent a contract that's a general one, still look at your individual contract. So another general note is that, fun fact, most of these will be in PDF format, so you can sign them online. It's so much more uh, simple and efficient than having to print them out. And some people do send you paper contracts. You have to print out, sign, send back. But most places you can just sign online. And there are, if you've never done it before, there are free services or at least free trials where you can sign PDF documents online, and they are legally binding, and they are lovely, and they're much simpler. I'm saying this as a person who doesn't want to have to deal with paper contracts. Please, (laughs) for the love of God, sign them. Sign the PDF. (laughs) Uh, So before we move on to talking about marketing and all of the other sort of post-editorial stuff, I did want to mention this is very American-focused. I'm not sure about people who are not in America, if there um, are different laws in place, but for... American authors, you are going to be given a 1099 miscellaneous because you are technically self-employed. You are working as a freelancer, an independent contractor, and any money you make, you have to handle yourself. Like you have to do the taxes yourself. You're going to get hit with this, the with the self-employment tax. Um, you're going to have to count everything that you make. I think um, most places will send you. Most places, when you, once you make a certain amount of money, and I believe it is $600, please don't quote me on that, six or $700, will send you a 1099 MISC from them, which is a document that you can use for tax rubber purposes. But if you haven't made enough to be sent that, you should keep track of it yourself in terms of how much income you have made by keeping track of your quarterly statements and any other information you may have. 
So what that means is that you have to do a lot of paperwork yourself, and if you can afford it, hire an accountant. I can't afford it. I do all my taxes myself. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's important, though, because you don't want to commit tax fraud by not claiming all of the money that you have earned by being a kick-ass author on your taxes come tax season. So please keep that in mind. You are not paying, like, you know when you get, um, you get your regular, like, W-2s, like, they show you how much money you paid every month for Social security and everything you pay to the government directly, well, guess what? You still have to pay that with the money that you make, but you have to pay it either in quarterly installments that are estimated taxes, or you have to pay them at the end of the year. Not the end of the year. You have to pay them like March or April when you're filing your taxes and you're suddenly going, oh my God, I owe the government how much money? I thought this was free money. Where's my free money? I want my free money back. It's never free money. It's never free money. So you are paying a portion of this um, to the tax people, which is, you know, its own headache of um, logistics. But please keep that in mind. This isn't money that disappears into the void. Even though it's super neat and you earned it, you have to pay taxes on it and you have to take steps to file taxes, at least this portion of your income as a freelancer or someone who is self-employed. Anyway, that is the end of my spiel. And uh, I hope y'all knew that ahead of time, because if not, you're going to have a really fun tax season when you realize. So please listen to this and take heed. <laughs> Uh, I feel like this <laughs> the episode of Dire Warnings. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about... Oh my god, I used your segue! <gasps> the dreaded segue! <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about the <laughs> other aspects of publishing that uh, you will encounter after publication, such as cover art. Take it away, Amanda. Well, um, so once you submit your book and you're going through editorial, they're going to contact you and be like, please give us, I mean, every press is different, but they're going to be like, please give us a description of your main characters and some important things in your book or like a thematic thing, or do you like these colors? They'll essentially give you a cover art form or letter or something that you need to fill out and most places will say do you like covers from our collection please include three that you like Ooh, cool and so you say i like these three and you include them and then <laughs> i love this description <laughs> i think the taxes killed me essentially they're going to ask you for a rundown of some basic elements in your story and you provide them and then the cover artist and there are sometimes multiple in-house cover artists will make a mock-up of a cover that is your book. And then they will send you the mock-up and say, hey, does this look good? And if it looks like crap, you shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> why did you leave this to me? Man, you're going in today. Okay, so fair warning. Like, if you are submitting a book to a press and you just don't like their pressers, their pressers, <laughs> Jesus. Did you, you die? I must Are you have. dead now? This is just my corpse talking. So if you submit to a press and you do not like any of their covers, guess what? You're going to get a cover you don't like. If you like some of their Don't roll covers, the dice on this one. Yeah, like, don't roll the, the dice. The dice are all bad numbers for or you. Or if you're prepared to have a terrible cover but excellent editing, then fine. I, I feel you. But if, if they have some covers you like, you might say that. Like, I like this style of cover, not this style. Could we go with something more like this? Please don't expect the cover artist and manipulators to come up with something brand new, spanking, innovative from scratch because they have to deal with um, stock photography in most places. Some people will pay, some publishers will pay for photo shoots 
um, out of pocket. Most or won't. like original illustrations or original but yeah, illustrations, but those most cost won't. a hell of a lot more. money. They're way more money than paying for stock photos that already exist. And you have to keep in mind that um, marketing considerations are many for this industry. They have to follow trends. They have to be topical and um some places are are way more like hey we know that this style will sell and a lot of people have given um headless torsos a lot of flack shirtless headless torsos a lot of flack but like that sells so some companies may be more toward that some people may be more experimental or literary and they want um, maybe no actual people on the cover they want some depending on where you're submitting you're going to have a different cover art experience Generally speaking, they are not going to repeatedly go back and start from scratch. You can say, I really dislike X element. Can we try something else? Um, if you don't like the font, that's fine. They can fix the font. If you think that it's too cool tone, they can fix that. If you really hate the model and it doesn't look anything like the dude inside the book, you can say so, but you might not actually have a choice about that at the end of the day. Generally speaking, the people or the artist will tell you how much leeway you have. <laughs> and you do, but I think it is important to know that you do have some leeway. You do have uh, some leeway, yeah. Like, I have loved, um, I've, I've only had two covers that were, you know, just for my book and not for an anthology. I have loved both of them, um, and I feel fortunate because not everybody always gets a cover that they love. However, I've still made changes to them. I've still been like, um, I think I've made tweaks to color palettes in particular because I'm really fixated on color palettes for books so stuff like that and tweaks to font placement or font something placement. like that yeah stuff like that the thing to keep in mind is that the artist is in many ways as constrained as you are because they have to go buy house uh, conventions and they have to look at what's popular in the market and they have only a few you know, stock options to choose from. And if you're like, I want this avant-garde, you know, image with this and that, they're like, I can't do that. Your book won't sell. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think it's just, again, one of those like do your research things where um, you should know what the covers look like at your press <laughs> baseline, <laughs> but you should also know like who are the cover artists? Is there more than one? Do you really like the work of the one? Because um, you can probably request to work with them. Yeah, you can at least say, hey, I'd love to work with so-and-so. In the future, I think we're going to have an episode where we talk with at least one cover artist. So look for that in the future. Yeah. They will have a lot to say about their constraints and industry <laughs> specifications because... I know that's a wild ride. They have a tough job, man. They don't they don't just get to show up and be creative. They have to be creative within very specific parameters. And um, a lot of people in any creative field, especially art, are underpaid. So they have to work a lot. And, you know, all of the places that I know of pay pretty good, pretty good amounts for um, cover photos. Uh, there's some people who, if you're self-publishing, by the way, this might be useful, they sell pre-made covers and they'll just alter font and you can pay like a base rate of anywhere if it's on sale from like $50 to $150. Um, you can get, if you're self-publishing and you want to pay a lot of money, you can buy a whole package. You can just Google around and find um, people who are selling pre-made covers or covers from scratch. And uh, you'll get a pretty good idea of what's available. I think that's really cool. If I ever um, self-publish, I'm definitely going to either do a pre-made cover or I'm going to have them do something cheaper, but from scratch. <laughs> it's like maybe they're having a deal this month and I can only pay them 200 instead of 400 or whatever. It's expensive and it's cheaper. Cover art be. is, yeah, I think, we, I think we've mentioned this in self-publishing talk before, but um, you should not expect cover art to be cheap. 
Yeah, the cheaper it is, the more like, hmm, did they get their rights to that? And are they being paid a fair wage? And Austin and I are both people who think that the wages in this industry need to be fair and living. And I realize that's not the case for everybody. And I realize that's a difficult proposition for some people. But please pay people what they're worth. It's a it's a business. They're doing you a service. And cover artists definitely deserve a fair rate. After yeah. that, there's just... <laughs> social media! <laughs> there's just social media and marketing. Which we could probably talk about for all day, but... Yeah, um, <laughs> we have opinions. We won't. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so social media for for starting out, um, you should... This is another thing to kind of observe with your presses, like how much marketing do they do for you? Uh, how much, like, do they do blog tours? Do they um, handle sending out a, an advanced reader copy of your book? to various reviewers will you be involved in that process but for they you buy ads anywhere yeah for you you should have your own social media kind of handled you should or have at least exist existing yes twitter is a great hub in this industry that's where i personally made a lot of friends um and there's a lot of really good writing culture on twitter so that's a great place to be you don't necessarily have to do anything in particular if you hate, like, if you hate Twitter. You know, it's probably better to not do the thing that you hate just for the sake of marketing because that will show. It will show, um, yeah. If you're j literally just on there to be like, buy my book, hashtag buy my book. <laughs> no one's going to buy your book. No one will buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> they, they may even, like, anti-buy your book. <laughs> Leave it a two-star rating just because they can. Yeah, there are writing communities on Tumblr, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, Goodreads. Goodreads. Uh, those are all very different vibes. It's hard to do them all excellently. And it's hard to do them all at once when you're starting out. And it may not be necessary. My rule of thumb is basically have a website so that you're Googleable. You don't necessarily need a blog either. I know some people have a blog, some people don't. I think it's nifty if I'm looking at an author's stuff. I kind of want to see what they have to say, but it's not like a make or, date, make or break deal situation. Make or date. Make or date. That's how I find my dates. I go look at author blogs, um, <laughs> and then I just tell them we're dating. So you should have a website with your stuff listed, a bio, any social media stuff, especially if you're doing like a guest post somewhere. If you're doing a blog tour, you need something to link back to that isn't just the publisher website. You should probably have a Twitter or a Facebook and or both. I would recommend that you have one or the other um, just so that you have a social media hub. I know that's a pain for people. And I, I do understand that if you're not already inclined to be a social media junkie, that it can be difficult to start. But if you're already into this and writing a book and publishing it, you might as well go whole hog and sell your soul to Twitter. <laughs> I It's nice, too, because it's really nice to talk to people who especially like it's really nice to talk to other authors it's really nice to talk to other industry people and it's really nice when people can talk to you about your book that's one of my favorite parts of being on social media is being able to have people be like hey i just read your book and i thought this about it or like hey i you know just listened to this episode of thr and i had this to say about it or like i i would love to read more do you have any recommendations it's just it's fun it, you can engage with the community and get a vibe for how people are reacting to your book, which can be really useful. And Twitter is where they do pit mad and various pitch wars where you can do like a one line pitch and then agents, editors, publishing houses can like it and then you can have the opportunity to send your stuff to them. So if you want to get in on that sweet, sweet action, it happens a couple times a year, if not every other month, it feels like um, you can and Twitter is the place to do that. 
A couple guidelines for Twitter though, we've seen some, I wouldn't even necessarily call it like bad behavior, but it's a situation where you have to be pretty careful about how you combine marketing with being a human being on social media. And here's like a couple things not to do. Don't overuse hashtags. Also because I don't think Twitter counts those. Like I think once you use one, it's only gonna show up in that one hashtag. Mm, yeah, I don't, I don't actually know. I don't how know that if they works, changed but I, that, but I I do know that like I don't think anybody is gonna browse a tag that's super broad and be like, oh, there's a book there, I'm gonna buy it. Like that's it's not a great way to get recognition. No, you might see like if you're publishing with a specific press or if you're publishing like MM Romance or whatever, you might want to use that hashtag, but sparingly and not all the time, like. Don't spam people with like book blasts. Like my book is on sale, my book's coming out. You know, have a, an actual human social media presence and then at appropriate times say, hey, I was over here for a guest blog. Come check out what I had to say about cookies. Or like, hey, I've got a playlist up that reminds me of my book, go listen to it. But don't ceaselessly spam people with book blasts. And like, I know people will get into like groups where they constantly promote and retweet each other's books. Please don't do that. It hurts my eyes and I will not follow you. If I am following you and you automatically send me a DM that's like to thank me and I know that it's like one of those automatic automatic, like, hey, I saw that you followed me. Thanks. I'm like, I'm unfollowing you. Goodbye. Like, I don't want that. Like, I I really enjoy connecting with other authors on Twitter. But if somebody connects with me and I see that their Twitter line is literally nothing but like, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. I'm not going to follow back. Like. I don't want that on my, I don't even want that on my feed. And I know you can mute people, but like, why follow someone if you have to mute them? You know, I just, I have no desire to do that. So be careful about how frequently you, you promote your projects, how aggressively you do so. Uh, With that said, like on release day for your book, yes. Go buck wild. (laughs) Everybody is like, oh my God, it's your book birthday. Celebrate. Yes. If you have really exciting news, scream about it. That's, that's again, that's part of having a human presence and like being a, a human is you're allowed to be excited. It's just like, don't become a marketing robot for yourself. No. And don't tweet people like, I mean, there's a thin line between tweeting people to start a conversation or like someone's asking for recommendations and you say, oh, my book has a, you know, a person of color as the main character and like a disabled love interest. Like, yeah, you can do that. But please don't show up in some conversation that two people or three people are having and being like, my book. My book is the best book. I think you would like it. Don't do that. It's creepy. (laughs) Another uh, piece of advice that you will probably hear uh, all over the internet, but it is very true. Do not respond to reviews. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just as a never, ever, ever, ever. Don't do it. Don't don't even complain on your Twitter about reviews. Don't subtweet. Don't um, subtweet. Don't do don't, it. Don't respond to... I, one of my favorite things, actually, is Goodreads. Um, if you have an author profile set up, which is a great thing to do even if you don't use it, and you go to the... Like, I accidentally once went to a page that would have allowed me to comment on a review, and they have, like, a little boilerplate that's like, hey, authors, please don't. <laughs> don't respond. Step away. <laughs> Step back. Don't you do it. If you're super sensitive, don't even read reviews. Ask your friends to find the good ones and send those to you. Yeah is a huge faux pas and unfortunately like justified or not generally speaking responding to especially directly to reviews wading into your goodreads to argue with people about things they've said even if they're unfair that is gonna get you that will get you blacklisted for a lot of people 
that will get you blacklisted by readers and editors and presses for that kind of behavior. It is very unbecoming in general. Like there's something kind of sacred about the right of reviewers to say their piece. If something is genuinely abusive or spammy, sometimes you can get it flagged for removal. Like if it's, if it's like, I don't know, something like, I didn't read this book. I just hate the author personally because they didn't go out with me in high school. Like, in that case, like, Goodreads might well take that down. Yeah, they might take it down, and also other people will see that and go, wow, petty, and it won't really affect anything. One of something else that is actually uh, pointed out on Goodreads for authors, again, that I thought was a really good point, is that getting negative reviews is not necessarily a bad thing for readers browsing your page, and in fact legitimizes the good reviews a lot of the times if somebody pulls up your page and only sees that you get glowing five-star reviews from people who suspiciously are named like so-and-so's mom dad first cousin best friend and so on they might be kind of like hmm Hmm, this seems uh not the same uh like all these people copy and pasted the same review if you have a five-star rating that's something's weird something is generally weird because people have very diverse opinions and Generally, it doesn't wash out like that. Go look at the most popular book you know, and I guarantee you it has tons of one-star ratings. So yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing that some people don't like your book. That shows that there are diverse opinions about your book. And also, sometimes the things they don't like are selling points for other people. Yeah. Oftentimes, like, there, a lot of times somebody will be like, ugh, I hated that, I don't know, this book didn't go into the gritty nuances of gender transition when talking about a trans character. I'm like, oh, thank God, I'm going to read that book. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Because I'm tired of that particular narrative. So that person might be like, one star didn't tell me what I wanted. A lot of times you'll see if there's something like out and out wrong in the comments and not just like a faulty interpretation or somebody just, you know, catastrophizing something that happened in your book, people will argue with them in the comments. So you don't need to pol- you don't need to self police your readers. Please don't do that. It is it is not good for them or you. It will only give you a hernia. It's not a con- conducive use of your time. Just go write more and feel happy in the in the knowledge that most of the time, unless they pirated it or they got a free advance copy, they paid for that opinion. So like, go buy a coffee and feel smug. You paid me to be mad at me. I think that's my favorite advice. (laughs) Some publishers are pretty up and up about marketing, and some of them are pretty low-key about it. And the thing to keep in mind is that no publisher, no matter how great they are, can spend all of their resources and time on your book because it may be a niche book that's hard to sell. So they're doing very targeted marketing, and they can't just blast it everywhere, and they can't buy an ad for it in whatever publication or on whatever website. So they're doing very specific marketing. If you ask them, they will probably tell you what you're what they're planning to do for your book. And you can supplement and augment that with your own um, personal marketing, which would be maybe blog tours if, if a lot of places will ask you to do that in tandem with them. But you can seek people out on your own if you know anybody. Um, you can create opportunities by talking to people on Twitter and saying like, hey, where should I go talk about my book? It isn't something that you have to do, but it is always looked at as a good thing if you are willing to provide your publisher at least with like a Q&A, um, a couple blog posts that they can use, exclusive excerpts, maybe some cute cut content. A lot of authors will do like a deleted scene or they'll do like a coda or a snippet of something something cute a giveaway is great 
great. A lot of times publishers will furnish you with giveaway copies and publishers will do giveaways themselves. So really, you can be as hands-on as you want to be and you can be hands-off, but I urge you, if you're going through all of the trouble to publish a dang book, try and do something to help your publisher out, especially if they they don't have the reach of some of the other bigger publishers. Like even um, something as simple as, um, I don't know, want to be, you, you were you were on a Rex list. Like you can be like, oh, I was recommended on this Rex list. Hey, I got some promotion or even something as simple as like, we just had um, Richard Compson Sater on a couple episodes ago and he was a debut author. Like I'm not saying that everybody with a debut book can knock on our door, but it may be a case of you have a really interesting story that could be topical for THR or another podcast. Um, if you, let's say your story is about something extremely specific and there's crossover potential for other podcast topics, like absolutely, you know, find something to talk, um, about your book in unique terms because there are so many releases each month that you need to find the niche that yours fits into. And, um, I think that's basically it. Yeah. I think as a final note, just be gracious. Mm-hmm. Be, be kind. as gracious and kind as you can, especially, be, you know, with other professionals, everybody's working real hard. Um, everybody is doing their best. You should still, you know, look out for your work and value your work and uh, value the packaging of your book and all of that. But also, you know, respect what other people are doing. And when you're doing your self-promotion, reaching out on Twitter or reaching out to blogs, just do do your best to honor and respect everyone's time and be as kind as possible. Generate goodwill, not only for your book, but for yourself as a person who is nice to work with, who is considerate, who meets their deadlines to the fullest possible extent, knowing that life sometimes gets in the way of everybody and caring for other people and so, so and so on and so forth. And if you feel socially awkward, which I know is a consideration, honestly, you can say like, I'm not the, the best at, you know, text communication, but I'm trying really hard and I'm really excited. And hearing that as an editor or maybe, um, you know, someone who's helping you organize a blog tour, they can be like, okay, I know that and I can work with that. Because as awkward as you feel, the fact that you're putting yourself out there and trying to be friendly <laughs> will go a long way toward fostering goodwill. Because I would so much rather be told that someone feels awkward than get a lot of like one word answers to stuff because they just don't feel comfortable responding at length. And on the other side, like value people's time too. <laughs> I don't know. It's a really, I, I love this industry a lot. I've made a lot of great friends and I love seeing the conversations that happen around me. And as complicated as, as this can sound, and I realize for people who are not already in the thick of it, it does sound complicated. You learn so much and you retain so much that by the end of it, you don't even notice that you're looking over a contract for yet another, you know, provision or clause you don't even notice that you're having to do intensive developmental edits because you're excited to make your book better. And you're excited to see your cover art and you're excited to think of stuff to write on your blog tour. And you're excited to choose like the perfect header for your website. Like it should be, you know, fun even when it's a little tedious. If it's not fun, if every part of it is painstaking and painful, you may wanna think about that going forward in the future. Yeah, and I while we're being while we're feeling warm and fuzzy, also know that you are new 
to all of this. If you are listening to this podcast, eagerly trying to get advice for new authors, know that you will build on what you do. You know, you're, you do not need to have all this stuff squared away right at the beginning. Um, I, I, you know, I've pretty much technically been working on this since I started attending GRNW, which was like three and a half years ago at this point. It was a long time ago. And I think sometimes about how like, oh my God, that only happened because I met such and such at a convention two years ago and we kept talking and we became friends. And that's why I found out about this call because they retweeted it one time. And then they introduced me to such and such and we have great conversations and now we're co-writing. And you know, just stuff like that. It, it's gonna build and it's gonna come together. It'll be a lot of fun and you'll meet great people. New, a new thing at the end of every episode where we talk about what we've been reading because we've been actually reading. I have met, I met my Goodreads goal for book reading for the first time, I think in like three or four years. I haven't done it since the first year I tried. I, I read so much for work and then when I try and read in my off hours, it's not anything work related. So I'm trying to get back into reading more romance novels that I have personally not put my eyeballs on before they're published. And I just finished um, Cat Sebastian's The Soldier Scoundrel. If you follow me on Twitter, you saw me mention it. And I read it, um, I think Jordan L. Hawk may have retweeted it. And Jordan L. Hawk, I trust. So I was like, hmm, what's this? And um, it's, it's really good. It came out in September. It's a Regency romance. And the name itself kind of tells you. It's about former um, soldier, uh, sort of a Regency lord, who comes to encounter a scoundrel, <gasps> sort of a jack-of-all-trades, who helps, who helps mostly women. Um, get out of sticky situations and they have sort of a clash of ideals and also a clash of mouths because they're hot for each other. Hey. But I really liked the story and um, it was great. It hit all of the the beats I needed to because I am always and forever um, in love with Regency romance and the fact that there's a limited quantity of that in MM and FF ruins my life every day that I'm alive. Like, I did not spend all of those years as a young teen and, and younger reading so many Victorian and Regency romances to never see them in my chosen queer genre. Yeah. What is this? What? No. So it was really good. And she's got uh, this, not really the sequel, but um, I guess it is the sequel. But uh, another book in that universe starring the uh, younger brother of the scoundrel, Georgie. Georgie's story is next. I'm really excited for that too because I really like Georgie and I enjoyed it. I gave it, I think, four stars on Goodreads and it was everything I needed it to be and I am eagerly awaiting Cat Sebastian's next. And I feel like I'm about to read something else too. Oh, I just pre-ordered a bunch of books. I pre-ordered the next two KJ Charles uh, and I bought the, the, the anthology with all of the spooky stories, horror stories in it and I need to read that next. Austin, what are you reading? Um, so let's see. I uh, have, I've been inconveniently for this i've been rereading the entire harry potter series which is not that's not uh, useful n- not useful sit down um, although a fantastic reference for like how to write a book that perfectly nails its audience the first harry potter book it does that extraordinarily well um and other than that for romance um i've been reading a book that i beta read that is by a good friend of mine daria defor and our um, or one of our producers i'm the producers. other one um, and it's called The Trouble. It is about a an aromantic guy. So it's an aromantic romance novel, which I think is really rad. I've seen a fair, like, we're a growing amount of ace spectrum romance, but I think people touch aromantic characters less because there's an assumption that aro characters don't belong in the genre. But this being a genre about relationships, 
it does because it does a romantic people still have deep and important relationships anyway it's about a young wannabe rock star who accidentally tries to seduce his ta not realizing that it's his ta and it's just a really funny book I really enjoy. I I edited it, so I'm super biased, and I can't. Yeah, we're, we're all biased here. Being... Full disclosure, like, yeah, Daria is a friend of mine, and I read this book. I've read this book, I think, for like two years, but it's really fun to see it in its final form um, because I hadn't read it in a long time since it had been accepted for publication, and it's really funny, and just making me remember that I like writing contemporary because I've been writing like flowery historical fantasy for so long. I haven't been reading as much this month because I hit my goal on Goodreads and was immediately like, haha, I never have to do anything ever again. Did you finish that like erotic cowboy sexy anthology thing? No, I have to do that. So you're still reading the sexy cowboy anthology? Yeah, since like, it's not an anthology, it's just one. Oh, I thought it was like a no. collection. No. You've been reading the same sexy cowboy novel for this long? I mean, I haven't been reading it. I started reading it on an airplane, got embarrassed because it was extremely hot and extremely explicit, <laughs> and then put it down. You shame me. I can't and believe you didn't I finish it. I think that was back in October. So... Oh, boy. You bad boy. Yeah. But yeah, so I read Cat Sebastian's, you read Daria's. We will link them in the episode description in case you are interested in buying them. Um, and then I'm excited for this because before we were doing the um, calls, but I, I think those are less, like, they're going to expire and we're, we were running out of calls anyway. So running now we've got, yeah, we were running out of yeah. presses. But now we've at least got some great options to, like, recommend books. And, and a reason to read because I have to be reminded to do that. Yeah, I do too. That was half of the, I was like, what if I just pressure myself into reading more because I have to for THR? I just, I work so much that the idea of picking up a romance novel for fun now is antithetical, but I will do it because I really enjoyed everything I read, so. I hope that this was a super informative episode, and if you have more questions, if there's anything we didn't get to, or if something came up for you while you were listening to the episode, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, or by email, or whatever, and we would love to connect you with any additional resources that you might need. And if you would like to talk to us for any other reason... <laughs> uh... <laughs> We've just... <laughs> that hour and 30 took a lot out of us, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, just for anything, if you just want to know how to change the oil in your car, just text wanna, us. And, we just want my phone talk. number. Somebody, we're very to lonely. Me. I'm so lonely. Um, very lonely. Well, that's it for this episode. And if you'd like to continue the conversation with us on Twitter, I am at Amanda H. Jean. I am at Austin Chanted. And you take care. This episode of The Hopeless Romantic was produced by Daria DeFore and Amanda Jean, with art by Kesey Young and music by Carly Ann Warden. If you want to continue the conversation, follow us on Twitter at The HR Podcast, follow us on Facebook, check out our Patreon, and please rate and review on iTunes if you enjoyed.